resting the mind before it falls into extremes. Resting the mind before it falls into extremes. And that has to do with equanimity. Because we need a very large measure of that in order to be in this world. In order to have a big enough heart to open to all the joys and the sorrows, all the ups and downs, and to be able to be with it in the most quiet way we can, to be able to be with our own life, what goes on inside of us, the joys and sorrows, what goes on with others in in those terms of joys and sorrows, and the ups and downs of all of that within ourselves and with others. It's what allows the unconditionality of our care for ourselves and others to develop this factor of equanimity. Equanimity also supports that restfulness that goes on to support the clarity of mind. When the mind isn't uh, reacting and pushing away or trying to hold on to anything, there can be a restfulness of the mind that gives way to clarity so that Things can be seen, the nature of life, within, without, can be seen in a very clear way. We're not running around, pushing away, you know, if we don't like it one way, or trying to hold on if we do like it a certain way. So it's this ability to live in the world with this inner quiet and this spaciousness and this ability to include everything, not to exclude anything. In fact, that is the subjective experience of equanimity, this kind of feeling sense of inner quiet with uh, a very uh, stable balance and a sense of spaciousness so that we're not pushing anything away, neither are we holding on to anything. There's an even-mindedness. That's one of the um, descriptions of equanimity, even-mindedness. It doesn't mean at all that nothing is going on. In fact, a lot can be going on. Thinking can be going on. But it's just a thought. There can be uh, sensations in the body that are really difficult, really extreme sometimes, but they're just known as sensations. There can be joy that goes on, but we're not hanging on or attached to the joy. It's just seeing the joy arise and pass away. So there can be these usual ups and downs, but no stickiness around it, no drama around it. And that's beginning to come out uh, as we go deeper in our practice, those are the signs when, when we see that there's not as much drama now around the same issues that come up in our practice now as in the beginning of practice. And we might see that from the beginning of this practice or we might see from the beginning of our practice in general. I remember uh, times at the beginning of my own practice when there was there was just so much turmoil that and i sometimes would act it out of course in in ways that wasn't harming others but i remember going into a meditation hall in san jose california when um i just had so much uh, resistance to what was going on inside of me that i didn't want to go in the hall and i I saw some, uh, there was a clothesline of yogis' clothes hanging there, one of those that kind of swerve around with, that are uh, pivoting around um, kind of a main uh, pole. And I just, all I wanted to do was go and tear all those clothes down, you know, and just rip them off of the, that I could see that reactivity happening. So instead I, you know, they were dry, so I acted it out as, taking them down and folding them. But, you know, it didn't go into that extreme, but this this is a reactivity that can come 
and that particular one from resistance. So the Dharma gives various examples from nature about uh, how um, equanimity can be experienced. And one of them, one of the examples is like the sky or like space that can contain everything but doesn't resist or reject or react to anything. In one Tibetan teaching I heard from either uh, Joseph Goldstein or Sharon Salzberg, there was the example given of paint thrown into space where space or the sky doesn't stick, have anything sticky to hold on to that, nor does it reject. It just goes through the nature of arising, passing away, all the whatever happens to that. So, uh, of course, if there is a response necessary, a clear response necessary, if we're in danger, then we, we take whatever actions need to be taken in order to protect ourselves or to protect others. But I'm talking here about the inner reactivity of mind to whatever unpleasant experience is going on or whatever pleasant experience is going on. So there is that space, that inner quietness to receive the experience and not to do any kind of pushback with it, to see honestly what is here now, what is going on now. If what is going on is related to aversion or attachment, there's space in the mind to wait and to uh, notice the arising and passing away of that so that we're not letting our action or our speech get affected by it and do harm to others and especially to ourselves. Or there might be um, a clear seeing of non-greed, non-hatred, and of course non-delusion because there is clear seeing. There might be a sense because of that space of seeing that There's a sense of generosity here. There's a sense of unconditional caring here. Or there's a sense of, um, you know, non-attachment here. Whatever there is in a wholesome sense or way, that is seen clearly. And so in the the world of uh, relationship to uh, our family, our friends, society, the world, we support that. We support that wholesome state of mind and heart. We nourish it. And because of that space of clear seeing, we carry on with our actions, with our words, with more, if there's more thinking about that, we do that in our world. So that the response through our words or deeds is not like a reactivity uh, where, where there's no space to see the consequences of our actions, of, of our thoughts, of our words. But the response can be a powerfully healing response in our lives. It can be nourishing. It can be onward leading, leading to freedom for ourselves, leading to freedom for others. So this kind of balance that I'm talking about is not a precarious balance as if we're Um, balancing on a razor's edge, that if we fall one way or another, it will be harmful, or there's kind of a feeling of rigidity or tightness around ourselves, around our hearts. But it's a kind of balance where we feel a very wide stance, like a very great stability, a very great inner stability from that wide stance that can accept and see what is going on clearly, not reject the inner comings and goings of the mind and the heart. So in some descriptions of equanimity in the suttas, it talks about equanimity likened to a mountain that can experience all the various natural uh, forces that come, the wind and the rain and the coldness and the heat, Uh, the lightning, all of that. It can be with that. 
and know clearly what is going on. And I really have liked, have um, uh, taken great understanding from this particular uh, parallel to nature because sometimes indeed it feels like that in practice. It feels like lightning bolts uh, coming through the mind and the body. It can feel like extreme heat or cold, you know, the fire element. It can seem like a lot of pulsing in the, in the body, uh, maybe a lot of movement in the body, the air element doing its thing. It can feel like a lot of maybe sometimes hardness um, or softness or prickliness, which can be related to earth element. And some of those combinations of air, earth, fire, water element the flowing on of everything, the water element. So this experience can come uh, of being a mountain as we sit with the various elemental experiences that arise and pass away as a yogi. Weather patterns that go on in the mind and the body, just like seasons. So I want to talk about it a little bit in relation to metta, equanimity in relationship to metta, because equanimity is a crucial part of developing metta, and of course, compassion too. It's said that metta would dwindle if there were not equanimity. It would dwindle to a mere sentimental feeling. And as we No, of course we have sentimental feelings in relationship to our loved ones, in relationship to um, those close to us. But sentimental feelings do not keep a relationship going. Our our love, our uh, relationship is a mix of sometimes those sentimental feelings that give rise to attachment, attachment to how it was in the past, attachment to how we think it should be in in the present moment and how it should always be in the future. And so the, the feeling of equanimity that we have is not one of indifference when it comes to our uh, expression of metta, but it's one of clear connection where we can allow the fullness of that being to be there with us in our lives. It gives an unwavering loyalty, not just to those people outside of our lives, but to the various processes within us that happen, the various ways that we're unfriendly to ourselves. Can we open to that? So it's accepting the ups and downs of life in ourselves and in others that equanimity allows metta, to do, allows compassion to do. That's why it's said that uh, equanimity is a very powerful force in those two Brahma-viharas. And also of joy, too, but in in particular I'm speaking of metta and compassion tonight. So I know that you can all relate to this um, example whether you have children or not, there must be um, people in your life or young ones in your life like this. And this has to do with um, the youngest daughter I have. Her name is Therese. And, um, of course, I have to report to her that I told another story on her, which she's given me permission to do. Um, (laughs) But... She always gets something out of this too. She gets royalties. So, <laughs> so during a very difficult part of her teenage years, when uh, Steve and I were helping to support her through that and to guide her through that, this isn't um, Steve's biological uh, child, but someone that. Um, this young lady, now 27 years old, um, 
refers to Steve actually, you know, as her her friend dad and, and is a is very close to Steve in, in that way, reveres him very much. So I'm sure that many parts of her life, she knows Metta, she's been to two young adult retreats here, and in many of her Metta practices, I'm sure in one way or another, I was close to the bottom of that, you know. I was a difficult person for her. And there were times in my own Metta practice when I, you know, would bring up my children and, you know, I'd have them in the family or friend category and I couldn't put her there. You know, I had to kind of go through the process and she was also at the bottom of my list because at that time it was true, you know, it was really hard for me to connect with her in my own heart. And so I had to add to my metta phrase an equanimity phrase. So my metta phrase would be something like, uh, may you have ease of well-being in your heart, you know. And then added to that would be the equanimity phrase, and, and I accept that things are the way they are right now. So that's kind of a, the sense that equanimity has in our hearts, that no matter what anyone is going through, we don't push them out of our hearts. We say, in some ways, we say with our metaphrase, or we have a feeling um, that's implicit in there that, yes, I wish you well. I'll do everything I can to help you uh, be on the path of wellness inwardly, in your heart, and in your body. And things are the way they are. They're not always well. And even when they're not always well, I still care about you. I still love you. I may not like you all the time in that sense, but, you know, the love, that unconditional love is always there. There's another um, equanimity phrase, and we'll be offering these to you later on when we do the practice of equanimity, is all beings have their journey. All beings have their journey. And it's just a statement of fact. And that's a lot of what equanimity feels like. It's just a statement of fact. All beings have their journey. And it's when I see loved ones, uh, friends, and especially my own children and my grandchildren see what they go through. And I have that statement of fact within me with a lot of loving kindness supporting that, that, yes, you have your journey. I'll do everything, and I do everything I can Sometimes everything I can means it's best to do nothing. But I do everything I can to help. And then um, what comes of it is, which is the traditional equanimity phrase, all beings are owners of their actions. Uh, Their happiness or unhappiness depends upon these actions or their intentions. Intentions is another word for actions not solely upon my wishes. Of course I wish well. Of course I do everything I can. But the fact of karma, the fact of cause and effect that has to do with actions, intentions, and uh, it's so powerful. It's so powerful. I have some influence on that, but I don't have total control over that. And sometimes I see very little control. So it leaves the heart um, in a place where perhaps we can open to all of what we're going through, all of what the other one is going through. I remember after those very difficult uh, teenage years that I went through with this last daughter and had gone through with the other children too, as they left the nest of the home. Um, and this was a time when Therese was, it was her graduation day, and she was um, actually that evening, she had already prepared, she was going to um, leave the house and go to her father's, her biological father's house. And so um, she came to me in the morning of that graduation day, and you know, her long body lay on the bed, now, you know, five feet ten, and 
remembered she was just, you know, fit between my elbows. And I would um, nurse her in the morning when I was sitting. So I had those sentimental feelings of that. And when, you know, the thought of her leaving that evening would be, you know, tears coming down. And one side of my eye, the tear was saying, no, don't leave. And then remembering, you know, the past years, the other tear was saying, oh, yes, it's time, you know. So a tear of sadness, a tear of joy. Could I hold on? Could I, could I hold, not hold on, but could the heart be big enough to, to hold both of that? And so that was my practice. And at times, moments yes in it, moments no. And so it was the mind always closing down, opening up, closing down, opening up. And this is a process that equanimity takes. So in other words, inclining the heart to that inner spacious balance that says it's big enough to include everything, everything, every part of your life of who you are, every part of of life that includes what this mind and body is made up of, the process that it goes through. So equanimity allows compassion to see um, the suffering in another being, and does not exclude the suffering in oneself. So that's a big point I'd like to make with equanimity, that it allows compassion not only to open to the suffering of another, but at the very same time simultaneously to open to the suffering of oneself as it relates to another. So oftentimes we think of compassion as, you know, just we're opening to someone else's suffering. But compassion isn't complete without that measure of equanimity that says, at the same time, we open to the suffering that's going on within ourselves. And we don't leave that out of the equation. So it gives uh, expansiveness to include the wholeness of things, the wholeness of one's being, the wholeness of another's being, their ups and downs, our ups and downs, and both of our ups and downs together. It's what breaks down the barriers. So metta or compassion does not become exclusive, but there's an inclusivity to to our love, to our care, to our hearts, to our minds. It's what His Holiness says, the immeasurable inclusivity of the diversity of that's within us. The immeasurable inclusivity of the diversity that's in the world. As we all know, these barriers uh, that go up within us, that, that push people out of their, our lives or out of our hearts because of their ethnic background, their color, because of their beliefs, their religious beliefs, because of their social status or because of their, um, what, they, what they own or their monetary financial status. All of these uh, things uh, that happen because the barriers go up, because of a lack of equanimity, a lack of just opening our hearts to it all and saying, this is how it is in our hearts. This is how it is in the world. Can we open and care for all of that? It's also, so that has equanimity, that is equanimity in relationship to the Brahma-viharas of metta and compassion. And I could go into it in relationship to joy, but it, it, it just um, will take up time, so maybe that will be covered later. So now, equanimity in other terms, how it's a very strong factor that nourishes wisdom in our practice, that supports the deepening growth of wisdom in our practice. It has great importance in terms of accessing this wisdom, The Buddha would say that for one who develops a deep, abiding equanimity, it is a natural law 
This is quoting the Buddha now. It is a natural law to know and see, see things as they really are, to know the Dhamma. That means to know and see things as they really are. For one who develops a deep abiding equanimity. This equanimity bears the fruit of wisdom, which the Buddha says, cuts the chains of bondage and brings realization of complete emancipation. This is not emancipation just in terms on the social level, which is extremely important, but on a very deep level of freedom from greed, hatred, and delusion, and the ability to be in the world with that kind of inner um, inner freedom, inner purity, and to act in the world from that place. So there are various levels of equanimity and two basic ones that I'd like to weave in and out of this talk. And one of the levels is protection from the eight worldly winds. And these eight worldly winds or vicissitudes of life are often spoken of in relationship to equanimity. And so they are uh, praise and blame, success and failure, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute. These are the external winds that often trigger an internal reactivity. So whenever pleasure comes, there could be actually to pleasure the reactivity of attachment. Whenever Uh, pain comes, there can be the reactivity of aversion, and so forth and so on with the other worldly winds. So these worldly winds connect our inner life with our outer life. So the second level, another level, is more subtle and something I just referred to now. It's when equanimity is naturally developed by the continuity of mindfulness and wise attention. And this equanimity happens because when a pleasant feeling or vedana arises that is clearly known without the reactivity of attachment, then that, uh, there is freedom from attachment in that moment freedom from any reactivity. And there is experienced momentarily a kind of purity of mind. When unpleasant feeling arises uh, that is clearly reflected by mindfulness, uh, repetition of continuity, repetition of mindfulness over and over again, without the reactivity of aversion, in that moment, It's only unpleasant feeling that is experienced. And the reactivity of of aversion is not there. And so momentarily, the experience of that purity of mind can be there, can be experienced. So a mind stream that's free of this kind of reactivity, of course, there's already clarity. So there's freedom from delusion and there's freedom from aversion, all forms of aversion, and there's freedom from attachment. So this is when this uh, purification of mind is uh, happening on a deeper level. And there's a greater ability to experience true nature. So the Buddha described this quality as abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility, without ill will. It's a sense of spaciousness, bigness, big enough to include everything, but not rejecting or holding on to anything. As the Buddha says, it's when liberation of mind by equanimity is developed, no limiting action remains there. None persists there. Just as a vigorous trumpeter could make herself heard without difficulty in the four quarters, so too, when equanimity is developed, no limiting action remains there. None persists there. 
So in that passage, um, in the words of the Buddha, uh, he's saying that, of course, there is action, but it's, it's not limited to reactivity with greed or hatred or delusion. It's much more open and can see that uh, the wisdom of, of responding with non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. And we often get the wrong idea that this uh, equanimity is a very dry state of like aloofness or indifference. But actually it's not. It's a very connected state to what's happening so that we really get a clear sense of what's going on so that the appropriate action uh, out there in the world or within ourselves can take place. I'm, I was remembering today with um, great uh, affection and also missing him, one of our teachers, Manindraji, who has passed away a few years already. We were in um, India. I, went, I had gone to visit him, and we were at, uh, in Bodh Gaya, and going to the Mahabodhi Temple, which was, is, for those of you who've been there, it's, a, it's quite um, a beautiful place. It's a place where it's said that the Bodhisattva was enlightened and became the Buddha in, in that particular area. And so we would go there in the mornings to uh, sit and sometimes at various times of the day to just walk around because we were very near in walking distance to um, the temple there. And um, long before, uh, in Manindra's younger days, he had been the superintendent of that Mahabodhi temple there and had done many things to help preserve the, the sacredness of that area and uh, actually was a great influence in, in the protectiveness of it in, in today's time. So at the time we were there, there were many dogs. As soon as we entered the, the temple area, which was actually all walled off, the dogs were allowed to go in. And they would follow us, of course, if they smelled any kind of food in our, in our backpacks or in our purses, they would follow us around the temple. And quite close, you know, and it's, uh, you'd have this feeling of being in this really sacred space, but at the same time, you were always just kind of watching out for the dogs. And, um, yeah, Viranyani was with, with me during that time with Manindraji. And so there were times when um, we would be sitting, for example, and, you know, the dogs would come up and be sniffing you and everything, and they were quite territorial. And sometimes, uh, and we found out that some of them were rabid, so had rabies. And so it wasn't really a good situation. So one time we were there before uh, dawn uh, sitting, and there was this big dog fight, you know, and we were, you know, sitting there with doing our practice under the Bodhi tree, and there was this huge dog fight around us. And, you know, this is what happens, you know, like Manindra says, this is India. And so... (laughs) But he didn't just say, this is India, this is how it is right now. He went out, he went, and he decided he was going to do something about it. So it wasn't this indifference to what was going on. He made appointment with the then superintendent of the Mahabodhi Temple, and we went to that uh, superintendent, which was a Burmese monk actually, and spoke to him about the dogs in the area. And Manindra took a very strong stand, you know, with balance, but with the strength in his voice and with um, just knowing, you know, what he had gone through to make the place the way it is now and said, you know, the dogs shouldn't be here. It's a danger to the people here. Can we not find another place for the dogs? Not that we would throw them out and not care for them, but taking that strong stand with equanimity. So I'm trying to make the point here that it's not just that we stand by and say, oh yeah, let people step all over us, let's just be a doormat, because this is how things are right now. 
you know, when that's the situation in the outer world. We do something about it, but we respond with a sense of balance. And we, we respond when we know there's a lessening or an absence of any attachment to our agenda, strong, uh, you know, unhealthy attachment, or that when we know that there's uh, a lessening or an absence of aversion. So this is a very important in terms of our practice in the world. In our practice on the sitting cushion, you know, it's of course we do something when there's pain in the body, but if we if we react with aversion all the time, um, as Carol was speaking the other night, that's the second dart. You know, how can we um, how can we be in our practice so the second dart does not arise? And that is uh, developing that equanimity. So equanimity translates into um, two Pali words used by the Buddha. One which many of us are familiar with, with in terms of the four Brahma Viharas or the four divine abodes, uh, which is metta, loving kindness, uh, karuna, compassion, mudita, sympathetic joy, and upeka, upeka which is equanimity. So many of us may be familiar with that word. But there's another one, which is tatra majatata. Tatra majatata. And that's a word that is sometimes uh, seen in various texts where it refers to equanimity. So I wanted to look that up because in Pali, what that really means, because sometimes to find that word in Pali and to see its definition can give us a sense of how we can be in the world with equanimity. So this word, tatra majatata, is a long compound word that uh, comes out with the meaning to stand in the middle of all this, like the mountain. To stand in the middle of all this. And of course, to know what to do. But in the beginning, it's just being with what's happening. Because, of course, if you can't be with what's happening, how can you know what's happening in yourself? You know, when there's that, just that knee-jerk reaction to do what we always have done, and which usually has gotten us into trouble, and to do it again and again and again. But to be able first to stand in the middle of all this, and to see what is actually happening here. So, of course, this refers to that inner stability, that strength, that strong presence of calm abiding, that uprightness yet groundedness in the present moment. Like the ballast of a ship that keeps, uh, that keeps upright in strong winds. Sometimes it feels like that in our practice. Or like a beautiful upright rock in a storm, another simile that is used in the Buddhist text. So this stability, this uprightness, is a protection from the eight worldly winds, this gain and loss, praise and blame, uh, fame and disrepute, joy and sorrow, all of those various ways that we... uh, find it in the world. One of the uh, closely related um, uh, feelings that we have in connection with equanimity is patience. And I'm always um, grateful whenever I read a story about the Buddha when he was faced with praise and blame or fame and disrepute or, you know, gain and loss, or any of the vicissitudes of life, because it makes me see, you know, like what I'm going through, the Buddha went through also. Great beings, Jesus went through. Um, Muhammad went through. Great beings on this earth went through all of these. And by opening to whatever was happening, gained great inner strength. So here's a story that I came across about this quality of patience related to these uh, vicissitudes of life. 
At one time, Shakyamuni Buddha was staying in the town of Kosambi. In this town there was one who resented him and who bribed wicked men to circulate false stories about him. We thought, you know, I thought, oh, this would only happen to me or to people around me. But yes, also in the time of the Buddha. Under these circumstances, it was difficult for his disciples to get sufficient food when they went on their alms round. And there was much abuse. Ananda, the attendant and cousin of Shakyamuni Buddha, said, We had better not stay in a town like this. There are other and better towns to go to. We had better leave this town. And the Blessed One replied, Suppose the next town is like this. What shall we do then? And then Ananda answered, Well, then we move to another. And the Blessed One said, No, Ananda, there will be no end in this way. We had better remain here and bear the abuse patiently until it ceases and then move to another place. There are profit and loss, slander and honor, praise and blame, pain and pleasure in this world. The enlightened one is not controlled by these external things. They will cease as quickly as they come. And the Buddha said, If outsiders speak against me, the teaching or the order, you should not be angry, for that would prevent your own self-conquest. Similarly, if they praise us, but if you should find out what is false or true and acknowledge the fact that is good, And even in praise, it is only of trifling matters that a person might speak of me. So patience, a a great uh, support, and sometimes how we actually feel equanimity is through this quality of patience. In retreat, there are two common experiences that we have where we uh, notice the, the reactivity. And one of them is what uh, we call sometimes yo-yo mind, you know, this good yogi, bad yogi, where we're praising ourselves for, you know, sitting a long time or having no pain. And, you know, we're blaming ourselves when there's pain in the body or when we can't keep still or when it's very difficult to be with what's painful. Or the other common experience we have is when we have yogi mind. And Steve um, gave a very astute uh, definition of this. He said, the magnification of the insignificant to crisis proportion. (laughs) And all of us have done this. You know, when we see something really small and make it into something really big. And I was remembering... uh, in a Dharma talk that Sharon Salzberg gave one time when I was a yogi. And this is kind of one of the more extreme examples, most outlandish, when she said, years ago at here at IMS, she got a note from a yogi, or someone got a note from a yogi. It was very serious. Um, it, it wasn't, the note wasn't kidding. And there was a request to ask uh, uh, the airplanes to get rerouted because there was a lot of airplanes going over, and it was a bothersome, you know, to her, pra- her his or her practice. And so, you know, that is an example of yogi mind. So it's just a large measure we need of this. You know, sometimes it, it helps to just, you know, see that how we're making something big out of something so small, and just to name it. Yogi mind, okay. And just to be with, where is it going? Where is the reactivity going there? Is it going towards, I want this, or is it going towards, I don't want this? And that is the direct opposite of equanimity, which is called, I've been talking about it all along, reactivity. Reactivity, in this case, has two components. That component of the strong attachment desire, or the reactivity of strong aversion or pushing away. So sometimes in my own practice, I see this 
yogi mind. And it's like I don't even need to know if it's attachment or aversion. It just feels like, you know, this big kind of reactivity. Or sometimes on a small, subtle level, but I see or the reactivity is experienced somehow. So no need sometimes to say, is this attachment or aversion and to figure it out. It's sometimes it's seen, you know, as yogi mind. Sometimes it's just seen as reactivity in and of itself, just in a, a very, very simple way. As Carol was talking last night, and, and even I think um, Sally spoke of it uh, in her Dharma talk, how many notes, you know, we've wanted to write sometimes. And I have to admit that I have written some of those notes out of Yogi Mind. I, I cannot say that I did not deliver all of them. But uh, I learned from that, you know, and learned to watch the the reactivity of it going on. And there was a lot of more um, of the second arrow that came from carrying out, you know, that that reactivity and noticing that in myself and the dukkha that had to come from explaining those notes whenever, you know, it was found out that it was I who wrote them and on and on and on. I think, did I tell the story here of how I had to, I wrote a note one time with my left hand so that no one would know, but, you know, of course, later on. So sometimes the Buddha talks about it this way, resting the mind before it falls into extremes. So I have the, when that reactivity is there, the thought of, you know, the quick understanding. It doesn't even have to do with words that come. Okay, just rest the mind. Just wait until, you know, this passes before doing anything about it. So I talked about the near enemy, which is that kind of uh, passivity sometimes or indifference and the far enemy is this reactivity, the extremes being, you know, hatred or it, various forms, um, aversion, impatience, frustration, etc., or the desire, the strong wanting that comes up. We're living in this time when fear and terror is are continually pulling us to dwell in negativity. And in addition to that, you know, there's these various and many ways we can distract ourselves from that pain of knowing that. Our consumer society provides countless opportunities to encourage, you know, strong, uh, obsessive wanting and accumulating. So it's really, really challenging to live in this world as it is today and to not act that out all the time. So where is the middle path? Where is it that we can rest the mind before it falls into extremes? How can we open to, this is how it is right now, you know, and wait for that space to see how it is clearly and then to respond and not to react with habitual patterns uh, of, uh, you know, grasping or pushing away. Carol has often said, it's like this. You know, it's another way of bringing equanimity into our experience. One way as, you know, in the equanimity phrases, we say, yes, this is how it is right now. And another way is, it's like this, just opening with that kind of balance. Yes, it's like this, rather than no, you know, pushing it away. So the other Pali word is upeka. That's a more common term. And it means to look over things, not, you know, like kind of look down on things, but to look them over in a very balanced way. The ability to see without being caught by what is seen, to experience without being caught by what is experienced. So colloquially, as Gil Fransdale, one of our colleagues and a Vipassana teacher, says, it's seeing with patience, experiencing with patience, experiencing with understanding. 
the inner process and also what's going on in the outer world. His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, you, it's when you can deal with the situation with calmness and reason while keeping your inner happiness, quietude. It's this kind of inner disarmament. Um, as an example for, for this talk, I was trying to remember a time when you know, there was a, a lot of um, praise and blame going on around me and for what I represented. And in this case, it was when I was in Italy uh, during um, what happened uh, at, at 9-11 in 2001. And there was over and over again on the television set, we saw what happened in New York with the Twin Towers. They kept repeating it. I was at a sort of like a conference where I was, or a workshop where I was giving meditation instructions. So people were talking and we were relating to each other in social ways. And so um, when this happened, it was shocking to see that and to see the, you know, to feel within me the reactivity. Well, oh my God, what's happening? Uh, you know, the fear is. is Everybody that I know who lives there, are they safe? You know, some of my dear friends here, are they safe? Um, and, you know, the, the terror that went on inside of my own heart and uh, the sense of, you know, at- attachment and the sense of aversion, the extremes that were going on. And then there was also, you know, I, I was in a, a group of people that were, um, I just have to say, you know, blatantly anti-American, and I really felt it. And it was, um, it was, it was okay. I didn't take a lot of it personally, and I, and truly, there was a lot of me that understood that, that that could understand why there were these feelings towards Americans, and me being one of probably three or four Americans in that whole group of over a hundred. Um, I wasn't asked, is my family okay through that whole time? And there were other things that were said, you know. And so I really had to um, go through that uh, blame or that feeling of, you know, being put down and um, being um, pushed away um, and a feeling being discriminated against. Um, It was very, very difficult for me to go through that. But there were so many times when I just had to wait and just let that inner feeling relax and to rest and to wait and give space before I said anything to anyone. And so luckily I didn't put my foot in my mouth, you know, when I spoke with anyone about it that would cause even more pain uh, than was already being um, thrown about there. And so that inner disarmament that goes on just... The space that allows that to happen is equanimity. His Holiness again, the Dalai Lama says, if we ourselves remain angry and then sing world peace, it has little meaning. So how could I be there, you know, representing uh, calmness of mind when, you know, there were times when I wanted to say something that wasn't so kind. So on a level that's um, even closer to my own small, intimate world, watching uh, my grown children go through their dramas, their ups and downs of raising their children in this world. So now five grandchildren, different ages, from ranging from 14 to 2. And, you know, I, I've raised my own children in a world that I felt was dangerous, why I moved to a place like Maui, Hawaii. And now it's, it's really um, sort of unreally dangerous, chaotically dangerous sometimes to me. By the way, nothing has happened out there to be worried about. Um, everything's fine, the same old, you know, stuff that goes on. Um, and so many times... I'm, I'm seeing myself slide down the slippery slope of, you know, 
just getting so too concerned and um, in it all and just having that reactivity to what's going on in the world and how can I protect my grandchildren and what can I say to my children to help them. And of course, again, I do everything I can, but many times I see them you know, going towards a, an area in their life or making decisions where I've seen that when you go down that road, it's, it causes more hardship in your life. And I say what I can, I do what I can, I try not to interfere too much, and I'm not, you know, an overly, overly active um, um, mother type with, with them. Of course, they think differently about it. But, uh, but there's so many times when I have to go back on that equanimity phrase, the traditional ones that, ones that says, all beings are owners of their actions. Their happiness or unhappiness depends upon their actions and not upon my wishes. Of course, I wish them well. I do everything I can. And I say what I can say. But in the end, you know, they... They reap um, what they've sown. And, um, and then I'm there for them again and again and again when they go through the sorrow of that. Manindra used to say, surrender to the law, surrender to how things are. That, that's what he meant by surrendering to the law. And he would say that to me when I wasn't facing how things are. You know, the children are like this. Surrender to the law. Your life is like this. Surrender to the law. This moment is painful. Surrender to the law. Surrender to how things are. And I often remember that when um, I'm going through my practice. Excruciating pain. You know, of course, I do what I can, but surrender to the Dharma, the Dhamma of that pain, opening to that which allows a deeper equanimity to arise. And so when this deep equanimity can open moment to moment to all the pleasant, unpleasant experiences that happen in contact, uh, when there's contact at every sense door, you know, when, when there's hearing that happens and pleasant or unpleasant accompanies that, is it possible for... Um, attachment not to arise in reactivity to pleasant? Is it possible for aversion not to arise in reactivity to unpleasant? Yes, it's possible with mindfulness, with that continuity of mindfulness. And when there is a lessening of this attachment and aversion in the mind stream, there is a purity, a purification that's happening. And the laws of cause and effect on very deep levels can be seen more exquisitely, more clearly. And the nature of all things is seen more exquisitely, more clearly. So they say, it is said, that when the mind and body isn't tossed about this way, there's this six-limbed equanimity where whatever happens at any sense store, this is with regard to our deepening of practice, not with regard to our relationship to the world, but with our deepening in practice. Whatever happens at every sense store, there's, there's this spacious, balanced stillness. And there's this absence of any kind of reactivity. And then there's this purity of mind and heart. And the deeper understanding of impermanence is seen. The deeper understanding of dukkha is seen. The deeper understanding of the of the anatta characteristic is seen. So this when this happens it is said that we can experience for short times how it's like in the mind and heart of an arahant. I'd like to end with um, 
the very beautiful words from the Venerable Achan Sumedho from the Thai forest uh, tradition, a disciple of the Venerable Achan Cha. The mind is like space. There's room in it for everything or nothing. We always have a perspective once we know the space of the mind and its emptiness. Armies can come into the mind and leave. Butterflies, rain clouds, or nothing. All things can come and go without us being caught in reaction or resistance. So this is the true practice of letting go. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.